0: Well, that's
1: cool, baby. I mean, you know how it is. is—rocking and rolling and whatnot. Hey, how's it going? Hey, I'm Lee McCormick. Welcome to Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast sidecast. Rockin' and rollin' and whatnot. Episode 30, Top 20 Drummers Part 2, 10 to 1. I hope you checked out the last sidecast, episode 29, part 1 of my Top 20 Favorite Drummer's Countdown. We're going to carry on with part two, counting down numbers 10 to 1. Again, I'm here in my basement, sitting on my drum throne, at my vintage mid-60s four-piece Rogers drum kit. Sticks in hand, mic in the other. (laughs) Ready to go. Thanks for listening, whether via the website, TrampsLikeUsPod.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever great music podcasts are consumed. Stay in touch with us, via we'll the website and the Facebook group page, Tramps Like Us, the Bruce Springsteen Podcast. Let's groove, paradiddle, paradiddle. so I'm continuing with my top 10 favorite drummers for this episode so just to give you a quick recap of what happened in the last episode hope you listened to that one if not go back and listen to it but just as a reminder number 20 was Earl Palmer number 19 was Marky Ramone number 18 Hal Blaine 17 DJ Fontana 16 was Mel Taylor 15 Tommy Lee 14 Liberty DeVito 13 Steve Jordan 12, Kenny Aronoff, and 11 was Levon Helm. Alright, that's a pretty good crew of drummers, but I got 10 more to lay on you here. 10 of my favorites, coming in at number 10, is Keith Moon, born August 23rd, 1946, passed away way too young, September 7th, 1978. Keith was born in Middlesex, England, and man, Keith played like a monster, right? He was an animal on that kit, so uh, I think they actually based um, Animal from the Muppets on Keith Moon. Right? He was just an animal, the way he would look on the drums, arms failing, you know, head bobbing around and stuff like that. And he was just a funny and crazy guy in general, right? And that personality came out in his playing, right? So, so many great songs playing with The Who. You know, he joined the band before they were The Who. Uh, they were the detours, I think. And then, uh, you know, they became The Who. And once, you know, Keith joined the band, it was like that missing ingredient that took him to the next level.
2: Uh... We were all from roughly the same area in London, and uh, we all used to work under the same agency and uh, but in different groups, the best group was the detours, which is what the uh, the band was called, which consisted of uh, Roger, Pete, John, and a guy called Doug Sandon. Then they got rid of their drummer and I got to hear about it through the agency and so I decided to go down and listen to the band. And I went down to a very small pub and uh, yeah. they were playing, the boys were, were out there doing a set. I'd had a few drinks and I decided, well, I'll just steam up on stage and, and play. And uh, they've never thrown me out since.
1: So many killer Who songs, right? He was such a musical player, uh, very inventive, very creative with the parts he would play. like. I can't explain, any way, any how, any you know, the power of of that sort of stuff, my generation, that sort of fast shuffle, almost like punk rock, fast shuffle, good stuff, right, the creativity, Happy Jack, what he would play on those toms, Uh, you know, you think of like Behind Blue Eyes, Won't Get Fooled Again, Bob O'Reilly, those epic tracks, even things like Who Are You that he would do later on in his career were just very musical, you know, just such a, a musical player and you think of uh, how he would approach some of the original material that that Pete was doing, right? Like if you think of uh, something like I Can See for Miles. Mm -hmm. Right, that kind of stuff, just very unorthodox playing like he's not playing a groove on that he's just kind of uh, i don't even know how to even know how to explain it he's just playing around that guitar melody and the, and the vibe and just <laughs> uh, it's just insane it's it's n- it's next level stuff right so keith was just so amazing you know another thing that was cool about the who is where they got all the influences from right like so you know pete and roger kind of had like a, a blues r&b background whereas keith came from this kind of west coast california surf music kind of thing right you know, using a spectre like that whole wall of sound you know and uh you know keith actually turned in his own wall of sound on the drum kit right
2: i think with the uh as regards to the albums the who sell out is uh, one of my favorites as regard to a particular song it depends what mood i'm in as to what i like to listen to if you've been working on a project from the from the ground floor up you're so involved with it that by the time it's out and it's done, finished, you're on to the next one. Uh, it's only in retrospect that uh, it's very difficult for me to talk objectively about a song that I've been very closely involved with on a creative level, drumming with and, and singing with and just being part of, just going through the whole process, mixing it and doing all this. But I still, they still surprise me. There's several, lots of songs that I play, especially on when now we've got this new release thing, the Magic Bass, My Generation. Stuff that I haven't heard for years, you know, and that really surprises me. Some of the stuff on there. Personally, Jan and Dean, uh, Beach Boys, Spectre, um, California music—they were my influences.
1: This is a great example, I think, of you know Keith's uh, California surf influence. This is the Who covering a Motown track. This was Eddie Holland's "Leaving Here." This is a cover the Who did in 1965. Didn't come out till the Odds and Sods compilation, or maybe it was on Who's Missing in the the 80s, one of those things. But it was a lost classic. Check out Keith just roaring on the drums on this song, right? The way his bass drum and his snare drum would sort of play off each other, you know, along with that that incredible cymbal wash, you know, very surf drumming influenced, and uh, you know, very powerful. And uh, (laughs) yeah, he really shines on this track. One of my favorites.
0: Fellas, have you heard?
1: in at number nine, Mighty Max Weinberg. Born April 13, 1951 in Newark, New Jersey. You know, Max and the Big Beat, right? <laughs> Just one of my favorite drummers of all time. Obviously playing those great Springsteen songs, right? A lot of the things with these drummers is the material they're playing, right? Like if, if you're a great drummer playing shitty songs, you're not going to go very far, right? So, you know, if you're a good drummer playing great songs, you're going to go far. And, and that's the case, I think, with, uh, with Mighty Max. And one of the things I admire most about Max Weinberg is just how hard he works on stage, right? Seeing him perform live with Springsteen. You know, Max is such a hard-working drummer. You know, he's giving it everything he's got on stage, and he's got to keep up with Bruce Springsteen. Right? Bruce Springsteen leaves it all on stage, and, and Max has got to be right there with him. When
3: I hit the drums and when I play the drums on stage, I go 1,000%. There is no holding back. That's why, that's why I guess they call me Mighty Max. I think it was because uh, I could just go all night you know see when you're not the leader of the band you have to you can only stop when the leader stops Mm -hmm. so really i have to be able to go longer than he can and he can go a long time my dream had always been to play in a band like this and uh i got what i wanted but i found out during that you know sort of quest for that dream that it wasn't all about dreaming there was a lot more to it
1: max joined the e street band in 1974. you know just like ringo did for him max influenced me at a, at a very young age i really uh, got into his playing that sort of uh, meat and potatoes kind of basic rock and roll charlie watts style playing
3: i met bruce springsteen <laughs> and uh, he made me the best offer possible to join his band this was in 1974 and uh, saw his ad in a paper to audition went down and played it was an experience that i've never had anywhere else in my life well, everything stopped for me when I saw Ringo Starr play on the Ed Sullivan Show with the Beatles. I mean, that was it. You know, and I was this little kid with the drum set and the dream, but now when I saw Ringo, I had something else. I had a hero. And when I saw him play, I could tell that guy was having the time of his life. I wanted to do that. I had something happen at the uh, uh, Giant Stadium that was really incredible. I came out one night, and I found a note on the windshield of my car. And, It was amazing how what was written in that note hit me said dear max uh i'm 14 years old and i play the drums and your drumming really inspires me i guess you're like my ringo star thanks marty that was amazing Mm. that i could do that for somebody that feels good
1: so many great songs he played on hungry hearts got that Copping that Motown fill off the top, right? Uh, Candy's room with those heavy sixteenth notes. Uh, My love will not let you down. That's a that's a great drum and tune. Even some of the recent stuff, like the Rising and Radio Nowhere, has some great drum parts. You think of uh, you know the bass drum on uh, Cadillac Ranch, right? Simple stuff, but just so 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 effective, right? Love it. And another great Max Weinberg drum performance is obviously Born in the USA, an epic song. You got that gated snare that was so influential on in a lot of a lot of music and a lot of songs in the 80s. You heard that sound everywhere. You know, it's got that, that big breakdown in the, in the outro where, where Max is playing the double-stroke roles, and you hear a lot of the Charlie Watts influence on Max in, in the song Born in the USA.
4: 1982, I'm sitting in this room behind my drums about 2 o'clock in the morning, and Bruce walks out And he's got this riff that he's playing, a chugging kind of just chord changes. And I just sort of start playing along. you know. And I remember I'd been listening to a lot of uh, Stones, and particularly the song Street Fighting Man. And I was really getting back into Charlie Watts' drumming and the beauty of it and the simplicity yet complexity of it. And I sort of channeled Charlie on that song. So if you listen to what I'm playing, on the song Born in the USA, there's a lot of, there's the big beat, but there's also all this little inside stuff that gives it this rolling momentum. Starts out with "Mm." and then the bass drum comes in. Then the drums. basically the Born in the USA song, and the room allowed me the freedom to do in the breakdown where normally on stage I would do single stroke rolls because double stroke rolls wouldn't necessarily come out, but I was doing all these crazy fills, but it's all, all of closed roll, not, it's all that and I only ever did that on record in this room because it sounded you know you didn't have to play hard it was just very swinging you know that drum snare drum sound it became a real signature it became a very heavily sort of sampled sound that you ended up hearing on a lot of records in the 80s it was a pleasure to come here uh, every day and play the drums you know some nights were better than others you can't hit them all but uh you know i think on that song on that night in uh the spring of 1982 i think we hit it out of the park Hey, this is Max Weinberg from the East Street Band. You're listening to Tramps Like Us, the Bruce Springsteen podcast with Lee McCormick.
1: Okay, we're at number eight. My number eight favorite drummer is Anton Figg. Anton Figg, born August 8th, 1952 in Cape Town, South Africa. Anton was influenced by the British Invasion Cats and, you know, jazz guys like Tony Williams and uh, Elvin Jones and those guys. Creatively ingesting all world music influences and expressing that in his playing, you know, uh, you can really hear how much he studied all these various styles of music.
5: I listened to uh, the uh, English invasion a lot, which was, you know, the Beatles and Hendrix and the Who and Zeppelin, and uh, a little later on, I listened to um, jazz guys like uh, Tony Williams and Elvin and Jack dejanet and kind of if you if you take any of those people that I mentioned, um, the cymbals play such an important part. For example, if you take Keith Moon of The Who, his style of drumming was very unorthodox and it was mostly like just sort of sheets of sound. It almost sounded like he was playing free some of the time, although I think the intention was to be in time, but it was like, you know, just a barrage of sound and the cymbals were a huge part of that uh, excitement. same if you listen to Ringo, who had very orchestrated parts, and the, you know the the hi hat. To me, was very uh, just, you know recognizable when Ringo plays it, and and when you listen to uh, Barnum, you know it's that very compressed sound. And actually, at the end of some of those Beatles songs, you hear the cymbals go shh like out at the end of the song. That's the compression on the cymbals, and that's a, definitely a sound I remember. And uh, Mitch Mitchell, you know, was a much sort of more rock kind of jazzy drummer. Um, It was also a very free style that sort of incorporated uh, the drums and the cymbals all at once, as opposed to, say, a later thing of Peter Gabriel where he consciously made records without any cymbals at all, which was also a really nice effect. And, uh, you know, if you do a song like that and then all of a sudden you have one cymbal crash, it really speaks volumes. Um, and then as far as the jazz guys go, you know, if you take say Alvin or Tony Williams, you know, you can really identify them by their, by that ride sound. And, um, I remember I was once driving along the coast of California and the, uh, the reception on the radio wasn't very good. And there was this song playing. It was, it was actually miles at the plug nickel, which at that time was an unreleased, uh, bootleg. Anyway, so I, I, I didn't, they didn't uh, identify what the record was, but I could hear that it was Miles and, and I could hear that it was Tony just from the ride pattern that he was playing and the sound of the ride cymbal and, you know, the, the, the reception was terrible, so it would go in and out and in and out and always, I was just able to kind of keen on the ride cymbal.
1: You know, obviously playing with the Letterman Band for so long, he was able to play with so many different artists, so many different styles of music, making him so versatile. You know, there's so much great footage on that Letterman show of him playing with so many great artists. Two performances that come to mind are Tom Jones' performance of If I Only Knew from the uh, mid-90s. And it's a great song, and you hear it on the record, and it's not bad, but you hear it with a live band and especially with Anton just killing on those drums, and it really takes it to a new level. Another similar performance that blew me away was Willie Nelson put out this reggae reggae record called "Country Man," and it was unreleased for the longest time, maybe 10 years or something like that. But there was this one performance in the 90s that Willie did of this country song, If You Can't Undo the Wrong, Undo the Right, something like that, right? And it's this killer reggae beat with Anton really holding the groove down. And it was an amazing performance, right? So to me, the thing I admire about Anton and I think is most important in in a drummer in general is have a good feel, right? You got to have a good feel. It doesn't matter what you play if it doesn't feel right. And Anton definitely has feel and groove and, uh, you know, good feel is most important.
5: I think the highest compliment a drummer can be paid is when someone says that he or she has a good feel. Because that person is saying that the drummer made the music feel good, made the other musicians feel good, made the audience feel good. The point of
1: this whole video is to say always go
5: for the feel first.
1: What can I demo from Anton Fig? I mean he played with all those great KISS records. He played on the, the first Ace Frehley solo record. I remember getting that for my birthday. And hearing the first track rip it out and just those drums off the top and being like, "Holy shit!" And you know Anton would play on Dynasty Record and Unmasked and and he worked on uh, some uh, the, the Frayleighs' comic record with Ace in the in the '80s. He had that song uh, Breakout, something like that, and then the chorus. something like that (laughs) it's pretty sloppy but those sort of off beats were so great you know obviously that drum break in the middle of rip it out that that first track off that ace fairly solo record was uh was uh phenomenal man and uh you know that's such a great performance on that track top seven Phil Rudd born May 19th 1954 cigarette in his mouth man what a drummer Phil Rudd just a drumming machine meat and potatoes guy I don't even think he has a ride symbol on his kit right just all hi-hat all bass drum snare hi-hat you know sometimes he'll go to a floor Tom <laughs> you know so great Phil's another guy that's all about feel you know just getting on that stage and going to work just pouring that cement right just just hitting that hammer all night long <laughs> You know, Phil's a guy that that understands the feel and the groove. You know, he's able to capture the role of rock and roll in his playing. You know, it's in his right hand. It's like the right hand is the role, keeping the the momentum going, and the left hand is the rock, right? Like laying down that backbeat, laying the foundation down.
6: We're a great band, you know, I have no problem saying that, you know? We can play, we can rock, and that's what we do. I mean, we play, if you want to play other stuff, you, you go somewhere else and do it, you know? But here, a, the, the one thing is to hook onto the feel, hopefully have a nice sound on stage, and just do the damage, you know.
7: There's very few rock and roll bands. There's rock bands, there's sort of metal, there's whatever, but there's no rock and roll bands. There's, there's stones in us. <laughs> and this sounds completely different to us. So we really aim, you know, in, a, in an area that's going back in time. To, in, with the sounds, still what the old analog sounds, you know. So we tried to even keep that. And, uh, and the sounds are bigger than digital. Well, what's yeah, what's
3: the difference between rock bands and rock and
8: roll bands? <coughs> well, rock
7: bands, rock bands don't really swing. Rock and roll has a swing, you know, like uh, yeah, you've got your hi hats. You know, a lot of rock's not got that swing in the hi hats, more become stiff they don't understand the feel the movement you know the, the jungle of it all it's it's a feeling
1: yeah malcolm young gets it right like, malcolm's kind of the soul of the band right? So, and you know he talks about how how phil created that acdc groove and was the model for you know simon wright and chris slade like when when phil left the band you know i guess they were just kind of holding the drum seat until phil was going to come back you had three different drummers, that must have been different. Yeah, but
7: we've always tried to get that emulating of Phil's style because that's what the style of the band was. You know, it's the simple, simpleness in the drumming. And um, that's what we'd aim for. A little bit of that swing, they didn't need to swing a bit, you know, that was. So that's what's required. But we always had our ambitions of getting Phil back, you know, it was just a matter of time for Phil. He just needed a, a time-out thing, you know, to get, get back to his, his own life and everything. But he said he wanted back, you know, and it was just waiting for the moment. And, uh, so we were just putting drummers in there, really, until we got him back, because he, he's as much... He is the real sound with the rest of the guys. It's the real deal, you know? Um, it still sounded like an ACDC, but it just didn't have as much oomph under it.
6: They call me up again and we go over and sit down after 12 years, and it's like I've been out five <laughs> minutes for a cup of tea. It's like I've been out for a packet of cigarettes. And that is absolutely true. I sat down, never heard the song, you know, yeah, right, okay, this is it. And that's it, simple as that, you know. Because I, 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 I love it, I love it, you know, and it comes out the right way. The guys like the way it comes out, you know, technically. You know, I've got you know I've got quite a few problems as a drummer, but when it gets going and the you know and you get some uh, some passion, then I you know then I sort of uh, I, I have my own expertise with that you know so that's about the only way I can
1: defend the way I play drums. <laughs> like so many great drum parts, uh, we talk about Highway to Hell. Just that that groove, that groove on Highway to Hell, right? For those about to rock, we salute you. The groove on that. Things like riff raff, bad boy boogie, whole lot of Rosie, those sort of f- fast kind of things. Let there be rock, man. That's a that's a burner. Seeing that live, and you know that that those eighth notes on that right hand just going for like eight minutes. Uh, just just incredible, right? Even, even the groove on, on back in black, right? That, that obviously that great intro. Right, it's all feel it's all feel <laughs> it's good stuff right so much feel with the cigarette hanging out of his mouth right <laughs> i love this clip of brian johnson talking about phil Rudd. phil Rudd, the drumming machine in the studio <laughs> right brian's talking about why phil is so cool <laughs> and, and
9: and phil you know i remember one of the songs uh, we had a technical breakdown in the middle of the song and brendan o'brien went ah yeah yeah he said that was perfect shit well, we're never going to get that again. I God haven't. damn it. You know, something electrical had broken. And Phil went, you know, sugar, now nah, just play it and I'll join in again. We'll do it. And Brendan said, it, I've tried it a million times. It's just not going to work. It, yeah. It's never the same. And Phil went, yes, it will be. It's just a fist. <laughs> I said, OK, we'll give it a try. And the the, the played it through and it finished. Now remember, um, Brendan O'Brien just went, and he looked at Phil and he went, "You are a machine, my friend. You are a machine." And and, yes. and Phil just went, "Oh now. <laughs> 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 it's true. Oh, ah, yeah. Phil's great. You know he plays the drums and he, he had this piece of paper hanging off one of the cymbals. Mm -hmm. And we were going, what's on that piece of paper? Because it was in a drum. Nobody went in. And after about two weeks, I went, I'm going to have a look at this. And it was just a big pair of tits. (laughs) A photograph of the biggest pair of tits you've ever seen. I said, what's that for? He went, Inspiration.
1: six my number six favorite drummer of all time is ringo star richard starkey born july 7th 1940 in liverpool england what a guy man what an influential drummer he probably influenced most of the people on my list here ringo had these parts that were just so memorable you know in my life ticket to ride she loves you all that great stuff come together you know just memorable memorable parts right and you know i love rock and roll Ringo. I love the early early Beatles stuff where he's, you know, he's really rocking those those trashy hi-hats and, you know, stuff like, uh, I saw her standing there and, uh, you know, uh, roll over Beethoven and rock and roll music and those, those rock and roll things. There's, there's a thing at Long Tall Sally that they play, a live version, and he goes into this triplet thing at the end, which I love, where he's going between the, uh, the cymbals and his snare him with these triplets so he's playing like a right so the song kind of ends on a verse like that which is just just rocking soul rocking right and a, an interesting thing about Ringo is that he was you know left-handed playing a right-handed kit and that really explained like why his drum fills kind of sound that way it's very hard to duplicate
10: okay i used to get put down in the press a lot for my silly fills as we like to call them and that mainly came about because i'm a left-handed right-handed drummer that means i'm left-handed but the kits set up for a right-handed drummer. so if i come off the hi-hat and the snare if i'm doing something like this any ordinary drummer would come off with the right hand so he'd go See, I can't do it to this day. So if I want to come off, I have to come off with the left hand, which means I have to miss a you know, a minuscule of a beat somewhere. So I go and back into it. So that's how that came about because I just can't play right hand. Like I can go around the kit from the floor tom to the top toms, which are on the bass drum easy can't go the other way because the left hand has to keep coming in underneath the right one. So it would sound something like this. (laughs) 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 Which is very awkward for me because it's like crushing your hands, playing the piano or something. I don't know, but I have to fetch the left stick under the right stick to get to the right tom-tom, if you can figure this out, folks. (laughs) Before I then hit with the right hand. So then I... But my style turned into the so-called funny fills because it would be... that's a major demonstration of my drum work
1: right and Ringo was just such a cool cat dancing on that drum throne right he would sit really high Ringo put his drums up high on the riser and he would sit high on a stool and he would kind of move his head back and forth and moving his shoulder up and down all those great tracks like boys I want to be your man you know just great rock and roll drumming that the trashy hi-hat so great the, the sound of his drums right the way they were produced it was just perfect that that fabulous uh drum solo on the uh, on Abbey Road on the end Right, so that stuff is so great. But, you know, like I said, I love all the early stuff. I love the Mersey Beat, rock and roll Beatles, you know, the early 60s stuff. So the first film footage of Ringo playing with the Beatles was at the Cavern Club, right? So there's this grainy footage of them playing this song, Summer the Guy, at the Cavern Club, right? So this is an old Mersey Beat standard from the early 60s, written by Lieber Installer, Richard Barrett. Check out this great drumming performance of the Beatles with Ringo Starr playing Summer the Guy, live at the BBC, June 19th. 63 top five now. Top five Lee McCormick favorite drummers. Here we go. Gene Krupa, number five, right? Eugene Bertram Krupa. <laughs> Born January 15th, 1909, passed away October 16th, 1973. Gene was from Chicago and at a very young age he worked at a music store and that's what kind of turned him on to the drums.
11: I worked in the music store running errands and so forth and uh... I would have settled for a saxophone or a trombone or a bass or anything, but the cheapest item in the, in the wholesale catalog uh, was a set of uh, drums,
1: hence the drums.
0: Maker,
1: he's a maker. You know, Gene was a one-man drumming army. You know, he studied the instrument and became a master. He was kind of the first drumming star. You know, he put the drums up front in the mix, and, you know, he featured the drums, always a spotlight, always a solo you know, he'd make the drum kit a feature of the of the performance, a feature of the the concert, a featured in the band. You know, it wasn't just a timekeeping support role. He's very flashy, very flamboyant, and had soaring drum solos.
11: I was what they call a, a homemade drummer, you know. But uh, after I got with Red Nichols and got into playing musical comedies, and uh, uh, I, I saw the need for for formal training, and uh, I haven't stopped yet, as far as trying to learn is concerned. Uh, uh, A big part of of, uh, my drumming is is what they call independence, the ability to work this hand against this hand and this foot against that foot. I I always believed that uh, that, uh, uh, the drum was, was... just as much a solo instrument as any other instrument. Heretofore, I mean, before that time, uh, drums, uh, a drummer was, was uh, used mostly as a, as a timekeeper, and the guy to load the orchestra truck and sweep the bandstand after the job was over. So if the trumpet player made a mistake, the leader always shook his hand at the drummer and says, watch yourself, and so forth. You know.
1: You know, the other cool thing about Gene was, you know, he was a he's a great dresser. You know, he's a good-looking dude. He had, you know, killer hair. <laughs> Always smiling, very uh, very presentable, right? He he knew what entertainment was, right? And he had uh, great musicality as well to go with it. Gene took his influences from uh, you know, a lot of Chicago and New York City jazz drummers, you know, playing with style. He was extremely musical and very danceable, right? Like he had these danceable solos. <laughs> like when you hear him play drums, like you want to get up and get down. <laughs>
11: Of course I, I came out of chicago and uh, mainly there it was baby dots Davy Cuff, george wetling uh Zutty singleton tubby hall uh then when i got to new york chick webb was a very great influence on my playing uh Manzi johnson cozy cole and of course relaxation was to go down on 52nd street and at that time there uh Desi was appearing on 50 a drummer shouldn't overstep himself in many directions. For instance, he shouldn't make his solo that long that the guy's got to go up and and, and get a drink to, to take the rest of it. He should be able to feel that he's losing the interest of the of the audience and and quit you know give the signal for the band to come on in which in my case used to be uh oh i haven't got a call bell here but i always uh, when i was getting ready to go out i never had a in my own band i never had a stipulated amount of bars to play but when i gave i'd be playing along and when i gave this signal that would mean that uh, that uh, I'm going to go out pretty soon, and of course I'd make a, a pretty obvious break uh, as to where they should come in. Like uh...
1: and obviously you got to talk about the sing, sing, sing drum pattern, like we talk about danceable, danceable drum solos. Good shit. I love that stuff. And, you know, one of my favorite Gene Krupa's tunes is Big Noise from Winnetka. In 1996, when I graduated the drum program at Humber College in Toronto, for my final recital, I, uh, I included this song in my performance. This is a great song, you know, a live feature of, of many Gene Krupa sets. And it was basically a, a quartet with Gene on drums with a bass player, a piano player and a sax player. Right, and uh, you know, so many great little licks in this song. I love the stuff that he would do on the snare drum. These little like uh, snare drum with uh, hitting the stick on the snare drum, like that kind of shit was so good. Uh, incorporating the, the uh, little fills at the end of uh, phrases. Right, these 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 clever little fills between the bass drum and the snare and the cowbell and the splash cymbal it makes you want to dance. All, all that stuff was so great. That sort of New Orleans kind of kind of stuff was good. And this song was cool, Big Noise from Winnetka, because you know there was a drum solo section where the bass would keep playing, and he would stand up and he would actually leave his kit and go play on the bass, on the upright bass. He would take his drumsticks and he would play on the strings of the bass. Right. So check out this version. This is live in 1966, Evansville, Indiana. It was at the Jazz Fest, and this is Big Noise from Winnetka. So as you're listening to this, visualize Gene Krupa behind the drums, you know, hair looking perfect, nice suit, smiling, tearing those drums up, making you want to dance, and then getting up around the kit and taking those sticks and playing playing the uh, the rhythm on the bass as we close the song out. As we
11: do a tune which might uh, bring on some nostalgia, here's our version of Big Noise from Winnetka. (laughs)
12: Ha <laughs> ha
1: That's heavy. I love Big Noise from Manetka. Definitely one of my favorite songs. And I encourage you to check that out on the YouTube. Check out a visual that, uh, you know, you won't be disappointed. Gene Krupa is just the best. Alright, number four is a disciple of Gene Krupa. You know, a big fan of Gene Krupa was Peter Chris. Alright, Peter Cola, born December 20th, 1945 in Brooklyn, New York. You know, Peter had such a big influence on me as a, as a little kid. You know, KISS were one of my first bands you know, I'd put on that live record and I'd get some pillows and I some wooden spoons and I would <laughs> I would do my best Peter Chris, was as, as I was listening to that record. I just love his playing and, you know, I, I had a thrill. I was able to meet him a couple of years ago and, you know, tell him what an influence he was on me and how much I appreciated those records and it, it was amazing. So, you know, Peter Chris was all feel, he was all soul, he was all heart. He took a lot of influence from Gene Krupa. You know, he had influence from Gene, Ginger Baker, Mitch Mitchell, that kind of thing, right? And he, you know, British invasion stuff as well. But he had a jazz background, and I think he was able to incorporate some of that, some of that swing into some of these kiss grooves. You know, bring some of that '60s R&B influence combined with some the British invasion, you know, heaviness, the hard rock of the British invasion guys, um, you know, the, the Creams and the Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. You know, mixing it with that R&B, bringing in some of that jazz. Jazz swing to it, you know. um, Some of the the flashiness, the showmanship of Gene Krupa, and just mixing it up all together, and out came uh, you know an incredible drumming style. I think that really, you know, helped Kiss become one of the biggest bands in the '70s. You know,
13: the snare drum pattern I stole from Gene Krupa. There's a song he did called "Wire Boy Stomp," wire brush stomp, where he keeps that pattern on brushes. And I thought, what would that be like on sticks? And so I tried it. It came out great. I was at practice. I was practicing it. And I just threw a hi hat, which he did, I caught from Crooper also. Gene Crooper, number one, is my idol. Everything pretty much I did of jazz came from his, the influence of watching this man. He was amazing. And anything I could take, I took. And that, because I played jazz for probably 10 years before rock and roll. So when I got with the guys with, with Kiss when we started the band, I would incorporate any chance I could get a jazz fill, a jazz <coughs> statement, a jazz, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a technical guy. So I, don't, I didn't go to college and learn all these technical terms of four by sixes and 20s by twos and sixes and fours. I play by feel. That whole solo, believe it or not, I didn't even think about it. I went up there. I started with the pattern as usual on the, on the, the snare drum as he's talking about, the, the shuffle kind of thing, and everything just fell into place. It just, before I know it, I started going over to the floor, which was a little rip off from Sing 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 that I threw in there. And then I would remember this other fill that maybe Baker did or, or, or Mitch Mitchell. I was very influenced by Mitch Mitchell. Mitch Mitchell was a great jazz drummer which was playing with Jimi Hendrix. And here's now a jazz, rock and roll. And I loved it because it was so different. And I didn't know if I could get away with it, that stuff in those days, because no one was doing it. But I just did it naturally, and it would just fall into place. And then later on again, someone, how did you do that? Hi-hat thing with the, and I, would, I don't know. I just, you know, the greatest thing I, I think about with me is it's all feel. There's no thought. I never, go, I never went up ever on stage with thinking, okay, I'm going to throw in doubles here and triples here, and I'll do a few paradiddles there. And I just play by feel, and God's been so good to me that the feel I play with it has been spot on.
1: And the influence that Gene Krupa had, Sing Sing Sing, on the song 100,000 Years, We think of the Peter Chris shuffle, which I've demonstrated before, where you're taking a basic shuffle, Right, Peter Chris is, you know, getting rid of that shuffling the hi-hat, putting it in the bass drum a little bit. Right, and then he's doing kind of a skip beat on his hi-hat. With some ghost notes on the snare in there. Right, and he goes into the solo and we get into this, this kind of triplet thing.
12: Between the snare and the toms.
1: Stuff, all that's that's all Gene Krupa licks, right? So great. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, Peter Chris, very influential to me, and definitely one of my favorite drummers. You know, right now, my alarm clock on my phone is, uh, you know, gonna fly now. You know, Bill Conti, Rocky, I love Rocky. So, whenever I wake up, that's the alarm that goes off, right? But before that, for the longest time, my alarm clock was the drum break in. Parasite right the live version you know six or seven bar break in there so (laughs) I just love listening to those drums that little drum bit from uh, Parasite on Kiss Alive. Alive being Peter Chris's greatest recorded performance. Coming in at number three my rockabilly buddy and yours slim jim phantom <laughs> jim mcdonald born in brooklyn new york march 21st 1961 right one of my favorite drummers and just playing on so many of those great stray cats tunes right rockabilly drums uh, all those great tunes runaway boys sexy and 17 you know gina he had the buddy holly kind of peggy sue vibe going uh, you know bring it back again all that great stuff rock this town I love rockabilly music and Slim Jim Phantom is the best at it, you know, but he wasn't really a rockabilly guy to start with. Like like all of us, he was influenced by, you know, the music that was around him, right? So growing up in the 60s and 70s, he was influenced by, you know, classic rock stuff and whatever records he could get a get hold of. You know, he started jamming with Lee Rocker and that's when they kind of both discovered rockabilly. Uh, they met up with Brian Setzer and all three of them kind of put this band together combining you know some of these 50s rock and roll and rockabilly influences
14: uh i came up just wanting to play the drums and i, I didn't really care so much i or like i didn't know enough to about so i liked what was ever on the radio and whatever records i could lay my hands on I have a few older cousins who um who um who had albums, and who could afford an album, really, when you're 12, 13 years old, Um, so I would borrow records and whatever they had, so I had one cousin, she had Billy Joel, so I listened to Liberty DeVito, Long Mm -hmm. Island guy, my other cousin had the Stones live album, and I still love Charlie Watts, and um, my my mom had the first Beatles album, I listened to Ringo, of course, so whatever you could kind of get, Um, I had another cousin who had yes, close to the edge. I couldn't play as good as Bill Bruford, but like, I liked that would try to practice a little. so any record I could practice along to is really what I liked. Um, and I came upon one of them had, uh, one of the middle Steely Dan albums that I love. Jeff Baccaro was my favorite guy. Um, just what really, whatever I could get. You know, my same cousin Where the stones had Derek and the dominoes and Jim Gordon was always a favorite drummer of mine and, like, mm-hmm. and really just kind of following your nose and like what record leads to another record kind of thing. And then, um, so I, I was that guy, Lee rocker was, uh, was my neighbor. We, and, um, he was a bass player. So we just always played together. we liked uh, Mick Fleetwood and John McVie's rhythm section, things like that. We would together, um, Bass and drums. We would just go any opportunity to play keg parties or rec dances. Or um, uh, Lee had the house that was the garage, and you know, that we I I left my drums there and had a practice pad. Kid at home. Um, you know, I just stayed together always. Still, you know, and um, uh, one thing led to another. We we all went to school together. So um, Brian was a couple of years older than us. Where and he was always hot shot, excellent guitar player, musician guy. Um, but when you're third and Lee's the same age as me, but when you're 13 and someone's 15, it's kind of a big deal. The older you get, the less those two years matter. By the time I was 17 and he was 19, it didn't really matter anymore kind of thing. So, um, we started playing the straight cats. I think I was about 18, just turned. So Brian would have been 20. It didn't really matter. Everyone had a car and had a, you know, had an ID, you know, kind of thing. And, um, and the willingness to do it. So by that time, we had um, uh, Lee and me from things like the Almond Brothers. I guess the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, uh, Clapton. What 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 was the classic rock of the day? I'm a little bit. I think drummer world too. You geek out over album liner, and I just wanted to know. Uh, uh, the Stones did see uh, uh, Carol C. see Barry. Who's that? Um, on, on one of the Clapton albums, it was Well All Right, Who's B. Holly. And, you know, just Eddie Cochran. They covered a song by E. Cochran. C. Perkins was on a bunch of Beatles records. So that and, um, you know, the blues guys that we learned from the Allman Brothers, who's uh, T-Bone Walker. So, like, we just did the natural research and really landed on that. And rockabilly music, When uh, I had the added um, – in benefit of really falling in love with the look of it and um uh, I just didn't know about it to be honest with you I was you know always trying to be a fashionable guy but like in the late 70s you would have tried to be fashionable to look like you know Clapton or you know Keith Richards or something which is still great um but when I found rockabilly it was it was a whole built in thing it was a beautiful thing when I we finally arrived at Elvis Presley's first recordings and first photographs it was like a revelation really and we uh, we just wanted to look like that we wanted to play like that we want and and there was other guys in the neighborhood who were finding
1: out the same stuff and we got to talk about the fact that you know slim jim plays drums standing up which is incredible right so he had this real small drum kit bass drum a snare drum and a cymbal right like later years he would add another crash cymbal but for the first bit, when they were starting out there, just one cymbal they would ride and use as a crash, snare drum, and a bass drum. And he would play standing up, right? And it allowed him to kind of bring the drums to the forefront, right to the front of the stage. So they were all lined up in a row, right? Drums, guitar, bass, right in a kind of a, a front line of rockabilly, right? And it allowed Jim to kind of interact more with Brian and Lee, you know, playing off each other. Slim even like. You know dancing around the kit while he was playing and jumping off the bass drum you know Brian Setzer even jumping on the bass drum with his guitar which was uh, you know a great way to end shows and yeah so it was it was incredible that he, he put this thing together playing drums standing up and you know as a kid learning how to play drums every once in a while I would you know switch my kit around and be like I want to see if I can do it with like Slim Jim and, and play some of these Stray Cat songs standing up.
14: See when we started doing it again it was things weren't so so accessible now with the being able to get online so quickly it's um, so we were basing everything that we, our, our lives on like a few records that we managed to find and the and the blurry photographs that would have been on these records, right? So um, uh, so we loved um, uh, uh, Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps, Bebopalula. Uh, there was a, the first two records, Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps, they could, there was a couple of snapshots on the record and the drummer, who's still my friend, Dickie Harrells, his name, Bebop Harrell, played on Bebop Alula, and that's him doing the, you know, the screams on, that's him, Dickie Harrell, he's still around, Norfolk, Virginia, and um, uh, uh, so, there were, so he was standing up, and so, we uh, we thought it would be great to, but still on the back, you had to really get a magnifying glass and look to see what these pictures were, and uh, so... In the early days of straight guys, we played a lot, so we had a little time to experiment with something. And let's make it like this picture where the guy was standing up, okay. And then our contribution, which no one ever did, was we put the drums in the front, which even the big band guys like Buddy Rich or Krupa and all the guys that I loved so much—they were still a little bit behind the bands, you know. Off to the it was there was no one that I knew of that was in a front line there's a little bit of an act to it you got to learn how to do it like anything else um but we played a lot like i said we did five nights a week four sets a night for you know but um yeah and then i and then i had a floor tom you know if we did stuff that was like you know buddy holly influence peggy sue that kind of tribally i would bring a floor tom on and off
1: but, you know, Slim Jim's just got so much style. He's got a great look. And, you know, that counts. So This is entertainment, right? This is not just, we're not just listening with our ears. We're listening with our eyes, too, right? So he's a great rockabilly cat. Just dresses great. Great hair, <laughs> right? He's great to watch on stage, you know, banging and yelling on the mic and doing all those ows and stuff like that. And you know, no way daddy and all that stuff. And he's such a cool cat, right? And, you know, doing that rockabilly swing drumming, which is, you know, based kind of like, 50s rock and roll drumming, which came from a swing era, playing that swing pattern on the ride cymbal with your backbeat and bass on a one and three. Right? Basic rockabilly groove. And then Slim had this kind of drag tap, this kind of rockabilly drag fill that we, he would do all the time. Right? So that fill would be kind of the turnaround fill. Right, good stuff, and that's the kind of, you know, the swing and the rock, right? The rock and roll, the swing and the rock, the rock and the roll.
14: That's the trick to it. It's got a swing and it's got a rock, and I don't know how to notate it or explain it somehow, but there's like a few things that I, you know, five or six things that I had to do, and a few of them I I can totally bring back to the original stuff that I learned from, you know, my first lessons in the music store mousey Mousy, and that's one of the ones in Chapin, Um that, um, uh he keeps a ride dotted 16th quarter note on the one kind of um but has has a um has a shuffle which is dotted 16th dot eight and 16th, in the left hand and like I could do it and it's a little bit it pushes the band I do it a lot of times in a guitar solo mm-hmm. and it excites everybody and mm-hmm. it kind of um uh it kind of is is like li- I use it personally as like a little bit of a high gear sometimes and it's a uh, you know, it's one of those ones that
1: I can always go to. Slim Jim Phantom is the coolest. Like, whatever he does, he swings and he rocks, right? So so let's listen to Double Talking Baby. It's a live version. Double Talkin' Baby is a cover of a Gene Vincent song. It was originally on their debut album from 1980, but this is uh, this is from their live tour in 2019. This is the Cats on the 40 tour. This is they're they're playing a club in their hometown, Amityville, New York. This is a fun gig, and this song showcases some great rockabilly German by... My rockabilly buddy and yours, Slim Jim Phantom. Uh, rockabilly music, it might
15: not be for everybody, but if you like it, we're the best at it. Are yeah! well, you ready, Slim Jim? Thank you, buddy. Drive me crazy, listen, baby. Don't mean maybe, double talking, baby. Please make up your mind. Oh, I said you would if you only could. At the top we'd if we kept still. Yeah. Drive me crazy, listen, baby. Don't mean maybe, but double talking, baby. Please make up your mind. Answer me, baby. Don't mean maybe. My trouble talking, baby. Please make up your mind.
1: Number two is Al Jackson Jr., the backbone, the foundation, the backbeat of Stax. Al was born November 27th, 1935 in Memphis, Tennessee, and passed away in that same city October 1st, 1975. All right, so many great Stax songs that Al played on. Hold On, I'm Coming, In the Midnight Hour, Knock on Wood, right? Time is Tight, all that great shit, Born Under a Bad Sign, and then later, after Stax, he would go on to work with Al Green very closely in the early 70s there. You know, he had such a sound, just that dry sound to his drums. Al was one of the first guys to be a salaried musician at Stax. He was so in demand that he was able to demand the salary, and they gave it to him. He was so good, <laughs> right? He had such a great sound of those drums. He would have this big, fat billfold filled with cash, right? And He would put the billfold on his snare drum so he would kind of get a, a muffled sound so it wouldn't ring as much, which is very cool, you know? Al Jackson he was so cool. He was a human timekeeper. You think of that quarter note shuffle on Green Onions. I always I teach drum lessons, and you know that's one of the very first lessons I teach is the quarter note shuffle uh, on Green Onions because it's it's seemingly easy, but it's not right. It's simple, but it's complex. Well, it's not complex, but it's simple, but it's tricky to get that feel correct, right? To be able to shuffle with just quarter notes, right? Playing that feel, that Green Onions <laughs> quarter note shuffle. It's all feel, it's all feel and soul with Al Jackson Jr. You're looking at something like, uh, right? you think of uh, Mr. Pitiful and that sort of quarter note feel on the ride cymbal, but he had some ghost note stuff going on as well. Right, and that feel he would do in that song... Uh You know, Al Jackson Jr., I always talk about feel with drummers and, you know, how feel is the most important thing, and, you know, Al Jackson is, is the feel man. <laughs> he's full of feel, right? So he's a great guy to point to as far as groove and feel on drums. This is definitely Al Jackson Jr. But just to support, you know, the love I think I feel and all of you feel for Al Jackson Jr., let's hear from Otis Redding's widow Zelma giving her thoughts on Al Jackson Jr.,
0: My name is Elma Redding and Al Jackson was a very good friend of mine and my late husband. And most of all, he was one of the best drummers that I know of this century and the the late century of his lifetime. I enjoy listening to all his work on my late husband's music and I'm so grateful, so thankful that I had the honor of meeting him. Mm -hmm.
1: I love Al Jackson Jr., man. So many great songs I go to play. That's Red Beans and Rice. <laughs> I think that was a B-side in 65, but uh, yeah, just such a great drummer. And I wish there was more stuff out there, man. I wish there was more footage of Al Jackson Jr., but I'm glad and I'm grateful for what we got. You know, like I said on the beginning of this countdown, I thing on episode one, there's, there's so many great drummers, and this is how my list plays out at this current moment, right? Spring 2020, this is how I'm feeling, but... You know, I'm sure I forgot a few guys and I'm sure I'll listen to this in a while and be like, oh, I forgot this guy. I forgot this guy. Right. So I got a few honorable mentions. I just want to, you know, doing these lists, it's it's so hard to leave the guys off, uh, you know, that made it like 21, 22. So just a, a few honorable mentions and, and not in any order. So Nickel McBrain from Iron Maiden, Bernard Pretty Purdy, you know, Rick Entfeld. Rick was awesome. Rick played drums with Ricky Nelson until he passed away with his whole band in the, like 84 there. But if you look at some of that Rick Nelson footage from the uh, from the 84 tour, Rick Infeld just killing it on drums, right? Cosmo, Doug Clifford from CCR is great. Bunny Carlos from Cheap Trick. Oh, he's sucking great, Bunny Carlos. <laughs> Fred Bilo from Chess Records, all those great Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters records. Jerry Allison from the Crickets, Peggy Sue, come on now. Bill Gibson, Huey Lewis in the News. All the great James Brown drummers, Clyde Stubblefield, John Jabble Starks, right? Too many to mention. Uh, I love the Allman Brothers. Uh, their drumming tandem of Butch Trucks and Jamo were great. Bill Ward from Black Sabbath was awesome, right? Elvin Jones, all the jazz guys, Art Blakey, Buddy Rich, and, you know, Jim Keltner, of course. But, uh, you know, I got to go for my number one pick, obviously, it's Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones, right? Born June 2nd, 1941, London, England. And it was basically seeing Charlie Watts play drums, which made me want to pick up the sticks myself and become a drummer. You know, seeing that concert film, Let's Spend the Night Together, from 1982, was just uh, an incredible moment for me. You know, seeing Charlie play that great drum kit, the the old Gretsch kit, you know, and, you know, traditional grip. And I was just like, oh, the way he's holding the sticks it just looks so cool. And he was just so nonchalant, like he didn't give a shit. And, but he was, the things he was playing was so great, so perfect. Right, one of my favorite... Charlie moments is I, I saw the stones in 99. This was their no security tour and, uh, it was air Canada center, like an arena tour. And, you know, my seats were sort of behind the stage and I was thinking this was going to be not that good right behind the stage. I don't think I'd ever seen a show behind the stage and the seats were not directly behind the stage, but sort of off to the side. So sort of in that sort of five o'clock corner of the back there, right? I had a perfect view of Charlie Watts sort of from the side and behind so I was able to watch Charlie Watts for an entire show, like uh, like I'd never seen him before, and it was amazing. Like just seeing him wind up for these fills, and I I thought he was like a boxer. Like he's almost like he's a ballet dancer when he's playing the groove, and he's very light, and he's very you know like dancing up, dancing on those, on those drums. And then he would wind up for a fill and it would be like a boxer in a heavyweight title fight, just reeling back and just, you know, smashing that, that China symbol, right? It was so cool. And it was also amazing to see the interaction between Charlie and Keith, right? Cause you always hear how oh, those two guys are kind of joined at the hip in the band. And, you know, you've heard that Charlie Watts only has Keith Richards in his monitor. So there are moments when you see, you know, Keith turn around on stage and go back towards the drum riser and make eye contact with, charlie and kind of jam out with them together which was, was so beautiful right and the thing we got to talk about with charlie obviously is uh the way he would lift off on the hi-hat on two and four while he's playing like a hi-hat snare groove right so basically you've seen it before but to hear it you know a simple eighth note rock groove might be but charlie would lift off the hi-hat on two and four so you get a Right, just that little hesitation, that little space would let, uh, let the groove kind of sit a little deeper, you know? There's a cool clip of Charlie discussing this with Jim Keltner.
16: I never yeah. know I did it. He's the one who sat behind me <laughs> when Bobby took us and said that I did it. I never, let and me, then I saw it on okay, later actually.
8: Let, let me uh, answer that yeah. for, for Charlie, okay? Because I've done this so many times. Uh, here's what happened as far as, as, far as I know uh i was uh hanging out with uh levon helm of the band they those guys were recording at sammy davis jr's home in the hollywood hills for and and i never can remember the the albums, but it was the album that had uh the night they drove old dixie down oh yeah yeah and uh and so anyway we were hanging out and uh and i i watched him uh play and he would play the back beat down mm-hmm. like this, and he'd raise the the off the hi-hat at the yeah. same, so it would be, right? And so, which is what Charlie does. And so uh, I watched that so often, and I, and I was so influenced by Levon at that time because that was right at the time when I was playing way too busy, and I was real infatuated with, like, because my hands were getting good, and, and I was, you know, overusing it in records. I could hear it. And I didn't, I knew it was wrong. You know, I, I, it wasn't what Hal did. It wasn't what Ringo did, you did, you know, it certainly wasn't what Levon did. So, so I wanted to be more like that. So um, um, I started doing that just, and, and that's my point earlier about osmosis. When you see somebody doing something that's, that affects you, you, you can't really help it, but copy yeah. it sort of in a way, you know, yeah. uh, when people talk about copying, I mean, it's inevitable you know you're going to copy stuff period sure. uh and so anyway so i started doing that and then charlie told me you told me years later not not that many years later you told me you were watching the bangladesh movie and you saw me doing it yeah and you and again that same kind of thing it yeah. you started doing it yeah. and then steve jordan saw you doing it <laughs> and Steve started doing it, so Steve does that. So and and then after that, who knows how many people? I've seen a lot of guys on TV do it. A lot of young guys playing it. You know. Oh, really? It's just. Uh, it's kind of. Um, I was never conscious I did it though. I think the reason I did it was to,
1: cause uh, to get the hand out of the way to do a big. <laughs> yeah, party. that's so that's the that's the way Levon, That's the reason that's, Levon oh, did oh, it. Oh yeah. You know, and Charlie was a musician, you know, he wasn't an entertainer like Mick Jagger, like the way Mick Jagger would command an audience and just, you know, rule that stage. Charlie was kind of more nonchalant and kind of liked being in the background there and laying the foundation down, you know, he was a musician, right? He, despite playing like these huge stadium gigs and stuff like that, like to him, he was just <laughs> just a guy playing drums, you know, <laughs> and that's why I love him so much, right? He always seems so unaffected. You know, like he almost seemed bored while he's laying down that groove for Keith and the band to hold on to.
16: I mean, really, you—if uh, you look in here, it's like that's all I can see. So, what's out there is just goes on forever, or not? I mean, Coca Cabana Beach just went on and on. We had three sets of monitors going. It was so big, mm-hmm. uh, but it was quite special, you know, that one. But really, once you start a song, once you start playing, it's Keith, Ronnie and uh, Peter Pan running all round because, you know, that's it. That's the world you're in there. So this bit, you know, Mick is the one and him, I mean, he he entertains. I don't really do that. I just sit. So uh, for me... Yeah, but he provides a comfort zone that we couldn't operate with. Without mm-hmm. because if Charlie ain't comfortable,
6: <sighs> forget about it. Yeah, in a way, it's, it's in a big way, it's true.
1: Yeah, right. And you talked a little bit about Charlie's great drum kit, you know, playing those Gretsch kits in the early 60s. He was playing Ludwig, I think, you know, and you know, towards the end of the 60s, early 70s is when he started playing Gretsch kits, you know, and there was a period there think from like 69 to 74 75 where he didn't have a crash symbol between his hi hat and his rack tom right so he had one ride symbol and one crash symbol over on his right side by the floor tom and just on his left sa- side he just had that hi hat snare kind of rack tom combination no crash symbol which was odd you know later in the 70s early 80s he would you know put a china symbol there which was flipped backwards Right, And that became kind of a signature sound of Charlie, that sort of China crash.
16: That's so how I play. I don't need all the other. I don't play like that anyway. How I'm does, simple. How does Who that complement the Stones' sound then, keeping it I simple? I've got no idea. I've just been sitting there playing. <laughs> and Keith said that's all right, then fine. Or he says, that's good, then... <laughs> but know, I, I bet don't... you've got a set of gongs at home, haven't you? <laughs> gongs. And eight more tom I played the other day, and I forgot I had it—a vibraphone from the 30s. Lionel Hampton move yep. over. Yeah, he's got double bass drums as well. No, he hasn't, <laughs> folks. Yeah, uh, you know, I have, but
1: they're two different makes and two different sizes. You know some great. Charlie Watts drum tracks we need to talk about, like Satisfaction is incredible, that stomp, that quarter note stomp there, Paint It Black with the, with the, the rack tom stuff, and the once again, the quarter note stuff, and going to the, the trashy hi-hats on the on the chorus, Brown Sugar was a, is just an amazing track with the, with the floor tom, Sympathy for the Devil, that, that samba beat he plays on the snare with the, the cross stick and the brushes kind of thing. And that groove, that sort of deep, you know, pocket that he has on honky tonk women, miss you, getting into some disco drums and stuff like that, right? Check out the the the, the remix version, the disco version of, of miss you. The drums on that are just phenomenal, you know. Start me up was it was a great drum track, and then later on, even later years, rocking a hard place from the or the Steel Wheels record in '89 was was a phenomenal drum track as well, but. As far as a great Charlie Watts drum track goes, I don't think you're gonna get any better than, you know, this performance of All Down the Line. There's a track off originally off XL on Main Street. And this is a version I want to play, this smoke and hot version from July 18th, 1978. This was released on the Some Girls Live in Texas 78 record. Just some incredible rock and roll drumming by Charlie Watts. The greatest, just the fucking greatest. some kick-ass rock and roll drumming man charlie watson you gotta love him you gotta love him i do i do (laughs) all right all right so that's my top 10 drummers for this show and with the previous show that's my top 20 favorite drummers of all time right (laughs) i hope i musically educated you a little bit on some great drummers some great music and specifically some incredible drum performances on this great music (laughs) all right it's my pleasure thanks for listening and talking to you next time
10: That's the show, friends. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, TrampsLikeUsPod.com. Communicate with us on Facebook, on our Tramps Like Us podcast group page, and on Twitter, at TrampsLikeUsPod. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, where you can leave a review and a five-star rating. Rockin' and Rollin' and Whatnot Sidecast is a non-profit audio fan scene created by fans for fans and is available for free. We are not affiliated with Bruce Springsteen or any of the artists featured on the show. If you have heard any music you like, please find it and purchase it via iTunes, Amazon, your local record store, or wherever music is sold. As always, gratitude and respect to all of the great musicians and performers we feature on the show. Stay cool, and keep rocking and rolling and whatnot. Oh,
16: blimey.